Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Ross Noderft, the Vice President of Risk Management at One World Identity and the former Office of Management and Budget Unit Chief for Cyber and National Security Unit. Ross, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us today. Happy to be here. So in some ways, I did a similar interview with uh, your former colleague, Joe Stunts, and what I enjoy talking about with people who've left OMB is they bring both uh, historical knowledge and as well as kind of the next to-do list that you can leave for you the next folks. So uh, in, in the past, while we've I've seen you speak and gotten to know you a little bit, uh, we've never really officially spoken, so this is a very exciting for me. So uh, first of all, again, uh, let's start with some basics. Uh, you, you left OMB. It's a tough decision to leave OMB. Talk about why you decided to leave now and uh, what comes next for you. OWI, the, the One World Identity, uh, the company, is, is the reason why uh, I left. I had It was a tremendous opportunity um, to help build and create a solution that will shape the identity conversation. That was very hard for me to pass up. I was not rushing out of the door at OMB. Offer came along, and I felt it was very hard to find another one quite like it. So it was, it was something I didn't want to pass up. That's why I left when I did. Really, you were at OMB for about two years, give or take, maybe two and a half years. And you yeah. played a role. You came over from the House. You had been in government for, what, about five or six years before that? In total, I did uh, – Seven years, roughly, in Capitol Hill and two and a half years at OMB. Almost a decade in government. Almost 10 years between Capitol Hill and OMB. Those are tough jobs. So uh, I think no one would look badly that you decide to, uh, to try your hand at the private sector. So talk about that role in the private sector. Vice President of Risk Management sounds great. What are you going to be doing for One World Identity? Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I'm very excited about it. Uh, as uh, VP of Risk Management, I'll be working right alongside Joe, and we'll be building a risk management and cybersecurity solution uh, that will be part of an advisory services platform. So basically what we're taking is we're, we're taking traditional consulting uh, for cybersecurity, for identity, for risk management, and we're packaging it into a way that companies can proactively receive some of that consulting service and hopefully make their businesses better and run in a more secure fashion. And we're, we're really focused on the nexus between identity and security, and uh, we're making sure that people are driving down their risks by focusing on the basics. Now, a lot of people will hear consulting. That's the, as soon as they heard that, they said, oh, another consultant. But this sounds a little bit different than your typical consultant. As you said, you're trying to get in front of it. So is it the type of thing, and again, you're building out the business, so maybe this is uh, something you don't know yet, but is this the type of thing where you're going to say, hey, let us come in earlier and show you where your risks could be instead of coming in later and telling the company what happened after they got breached. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're definitely going to be on the, the front end of that. I think what makes this opportunity unique is that we are we are even further in front than let us come in, in and help you individually. I mean, that is going to be an option and a possibility, but we're getting, we're getting what we're trying to do is package this so it's a, a service that you can buy and then access anytime you want, where we have people on staff who can help you with individual specific consulting projects and strategies, as well as give you a raft of materials that you can apply directly to your business based on best practices from industry and from government. A lot of your customers as of now, industry, government, both, where do you see a lot of your customers initially? To start, we're definitely focused on industry. We're going to expand in the near future to government clients if possible, but I think the initial focus will definitely be on the industry. 
one of the things about leaving OMB, you bring all this government experience with you, but at the same time, you've worked very closely with industry, the development of, and we're going to go into this in a second, a lot of the cybersecurity work you, you guys have been doing at OMB through the Cyber and National Security Unit has been closely tied to that industry work. Is that why this was such a, a great opportunity for you? Because you can take your what you've learned in government, you take what you've kind of learned in industry, and then apply it all to industry? I think, I mean, I think that sums it up. I think that the basics of cybersecurity and the basics of risk management don't necessarily change when you go from government to industry. I think the nuance is more what the rules and regulations that guide and govern how you implement those best practices. So I think that taking all of those uh, interactions that we've had, both from the industry side as well as from the government side, and applying it into succinct best practices that are usable and fungible across both uh, both sectors is, is exciting, and it's a, it'll, it'll be a good opportunity. Really, Ross, what you're doing here is just taking A130 and dumbing it down for industry. <laughs> I mean, I, as someone who's read A130, you and I and maybe five other people, that, that's really what you're doing. Come on, tell me. <laughs> A130 is a phenomenal document, and Carol <laughs> Bales is a sage, both in industry and in the government. So, yeah, I mean, that is the Bible, or one of the one of the the major things that that outlines and details uh, a lot of of good information security practices. Now you're being very modest here. I know the fact that you were the one who rewrote A130. So that's where we're going to start with talking about your your time on OMB, time at Capitol Hill. Talk a little bit about some of those accomplishments at OMB. What what are you most proud of beyond, of course, the Bible A130? And you can talk a little bit about that if you want. Look, I, I've been fortunate to work for two different administrations. I came on right after the OPM breach to, to help shore up the policy gaps that were, were evident and, and drive some of the cyber hygiene across the federal civilian agencies. And our, our team, to include Carol, developed the CNAP, the Cybersecurity National Action Plan in the Obama administration, the Cybersecurity Strategy and Implementation Plan. We actually coined and, and implemented the idea of, of using HVAs as a way to focus uh, and look at how to assess risk for specific systems. And, and we helped with incident response work. I think those are some of the, the more exciting things. We stood up the CISO Council, gave voice to some of the uh, great government talent that often gets buried. And what I'm most proud of, though, is our work on, on kind of translating between the different layers, right? You have administration officials who come in who have not traditionally looked at IT as something that is at the forefront and that is driving mission. But we were able to come in, and in a time where it was raised to the top because of crisis, we, we were able to take that and help roll it into a longer-term discussion that really has created some momentum that we're, we're seeing the fruits of right now. Going from the Obama administration to the Trump administration created a, a gap that could have uh, felt like we were taking two steps back, but due to some of the uh, due to some of the forward-leaning government leaders, the strategic partnerships that we had, we were really able to keep the momentum going. I think modernizing the IT backbone that underpins how our government relates to its citizens will enhance our security posture and the way the government does business. Frankly, so like, kudos to the the management team at OMB and all of the leaders from Andrew Mayock and Beth Colbert to now Margaret Whitekirk and Chris Liddell for keeping the important work alive. Frankly. 
I want to go back because you came in right at the OPM breach. It was one of those times when uh, I remember talking with one of the press people at OPM. I think he was it was his first week on the job, and you know he I think he walked in was handed, "Hey, by the way, this is coming up." Talk about your experience with OPM. Were you brought over from the Hill to handle it, or had you already made that decision to come to OMB? And as you walked in that front door, Tony Scott said, "Welcome and here." <laughs> I think OPM happened and. At the time, it was Trevor Rudolph and Joe Stunts and a couple other folks on the team. And this is now how it was told to me. They looked over the OMB team and said, hey, guys, we need you to really help with this. It's an all-hands-on-deck. We had some room because of ITOR to, to hire people on, and we had some, some authorities, 2210 authorities, to help bring people on. So they gave Trevor the green light, and uh, he did everything he could to bring us in as fast as possible. So uh, Josh Moses and I got there relatively uh, close to the same time as did Chris DeRussia, and uh, we, we just hit the ground running and spent a lot of time and a lot of hours in the office. And talk about that experience with OPM, because uh, as I've talked to Trevor in the past and, and Joe in the past, it was one of the most exhilarating, frustrating, hardest working times ever. What were some of the biggest takeaways from that experience? I mean, we, we, we know that, you know, 22 million former and current feds had their identity stolen. We know the background in the, of that sense. But what did it do for you from a cybersecurity standpoint? And, and how are you bringing that forward as you go into your new job? My biggest takeaway from that experience was the work we did with the cybersecurity sprint. It was seminal cybersecurity risk management at its finest. We identified key areas that were weak from a policy standpoint. We defined what the outcomes should look like based on best practices across industry and the current metrics that existed at the time. And we said, look, we got to do this. We have to do the basics right. And, and by focusing on those basics and giving hard targets for people to, to hit and making it understandable. So and when I say understandable, I mean understandable from a what you have to do and understandable from a what this will lead to from an outcome standpoint. By being able to clearly state both of those, it allowed CIOs, it allowed CISOs, it allowed ISOs all to have conversations with undersecretaries for management deputy secretaries, and in, some, in, in a lot of cases, the secretaries of departments and agencies to really move the ball forward in a way that hadn't, hadn't happened in, in a very long time, if not ever. Following it from the outsider's perspective, you know, I saw the, the changes, whether it was the, the implementation of two-factor authentication or this idea of, as you mentioned, high-value assets, just identifying what they were and the fact is how do you need to secure them. I don't think we've ever seen the government move like that before, and you know, it took a crisis to do so, but you know, kudos to your, you guys at OMB for really driving that change and not taking no for an answer because the, the answer many times before that had, had been no. Well, I'll say again, I, kudos to Beth Colbert for that one. I mean, she, she really did uh, spearhead a lot, of that, a lot of that work. Look, I think that never let a good crisis go to waste, obviously. And the interesting thing to me is that this, the incident woke us up a little bit, right? The idea of an HVA wasn't something that was new in industry. And it wasn't really even new in the government. It was just a frame of reference for how we look at our assets in general. It, it was a wake-up call across the federal government to say, hey, maybe some of this data that I didn't necessarily think was something I needed to classify at a FISMA high level may actually be something that could, through a mosaic effect, be used by a nation-state actor. But 
people don't think of it that way, especially at agencies that don't have a security mindset and a security focus, right? I think it's a little bit more natural for somebody who's at a DHS or somebody who's at a DOJ to think about it that way. But for somebody whose mission is education or whose mission is something slightly different, it was an opportunity to really have a hard conversation and take a look at what the data stores are that you have and, and how you what the data is that allows you to conduct your mission day to day. All right. I think that's a, that's a great point. And Ross, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about high value assets. This is a special edition of Asset CIO. My guest is Ross Nodurft, the vice president of risk management at One World Identity and the former OMB unit chief for cyber and national security unit. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. This is a special edition of Ask the CIO, another exit interview, if you will, this time with Ross Nodorft, Vice President of Risk Management at One World Identity and the former OMB Unit Chief for Cyber and National Security Unit. So, Ross, you mentioned a couple of things that, that you worked on. One of them was the high-valued assets, and we talked a little bit about that right before break, but let me delve into that a little bit more because one of the big things, as you said, was it's not that it was new. It's not that agencies didn't know what they were but it caused people to think a little differently. The impact that has had, I think, you, as you said, two years later, you still see the downstream effects. What about the high-valued assets continues to kind of give agencies that North Star of what they're doing with cybersecurity? And then where are we heading next with HVAs? The idea of doing a crown jewels assessment in any organization is, again, one of those best practices for risk management and cybersecurity. You have to know two things, what data you have, and then how important that data is to you as an organization. And I think that that's the critical part, right? And that's the way forward, frankly. I think we have started to really peel back the layers of what data exists in our federal government, in our federal networks, on the systems that we have in the agencies. And we need to continue to assess what data is important and what data isn't as important, what data is can be released publicly, what data can be kept using certain controls at a lower risk level as opposed to using all of the controls. It's a, an important demarcation point for being able to efficiently do cybersecurity. And what I mean by that is, and folks over at DHS have, have said this publicly, this is kind of the direction that, the, that they're moving from a, from a risk standpoint, which is we need to focus our efforts and our energy on the most critical things that we have that we need to protect because you can't protect everything at all times. By doing a fulsome assessment of what you have and understanding what levels of attention those data sets, data repositories need and how to protect them, whether it's through encryption, whether it's through segmentation, or whether it's something that you feel comfortable having out there publicly. And I think that's important, right? Not everything needs to be protected at the level that the most critical things need to be protected at. And after OPM, there was a rush to protect everything as, as aggressively as possible. And look, I, I think that's the way the pendulum swings. But I think right now we have reached a point, and a lot of it's due to leadership having these discussions with folks, uh, of figuring out how best to classify that data and really put in a robust data governance strategy at departments and agencies. I think that's a key point. There was that initial push for OPM after OPM, and then people have, okay, now what, what's the more pragmatic way? Because you can't protect everything, and if you protect everything, you probably end up protecting nothing. So how are agencies doing? Do you think that they're at that point now where they are making those 
better decisions of and, and making decisions also about, okay, what can we release or what deserves a lower, if you will, level of, of protection? I, I think agencies are starting to, absolutely. I think there are some agencies that are a little bit further along than others in this process, but I think in general the agencies are starting to have those conversations. Between this administration and the, the last administration, there was a delta, and we have new leadership coming in, and that creates a, a huge opportunity space to really think hard about what data we have and what data we need to do our missions in, a, in an effective way. So. It's actually been a very good thing to to have that stop and start point with the new administration because that's allowed for those conversations to, to go further, uh, faster. And that's the other piece of this, and then we we're going to get to the cybersecurity executive order that the Trump administration released and that you worked on. But before I do that, I just want to go back to one other thing you mentioned, which is the uh, CISO Council. There's been a lot of concern whether or not this administration will name a new federal chief information security officer. And whether they do or don't, you may not know and maybe will never know, but the question, I guess, is, is the CISO Council still alive and well? Is that still meeting? Because I think one of the benefits that came from, again, the OPM breach is that closer sharing of data, the best practices and the like among chief information security officers. Yes, it is. The CISO Council is alive and well. I think that they, so they meet frequently, the monthly meetings in person. They also have opportunities to do phone calls and other touch points, they feed directly into the CIO Council. So I, th I think that, that that has gotten more and more robust uh, since it was kicked off about a year and a half ago. It's a, it's a great venue for people to vet things, not just metrics, but to, to vet changes in policy, to vet approaches to doing best practices, and it allows uh, CISOs to have a forum to really talk to each other. Uh, in ways that they haven't ever been able to. And you saw that with the WannaCry virus, a ransomware attack that did not Im impact the federal government very much, if at all. One of the things that Jeanette Manfer from DHS told me was one of the first calls she made was to the CIOs and the CISOs. And because there was a council, that call became a lot easier than if you had to go, okay, who's your CISO? Put him on the line or put her on the line. You were there for part of that or most of that. Talk a little bit about what you saw during the WannaCry and, and how all the work you guys had been doing over the last you know year and a half or so really came together. Fortunately, we had a CISO Council meeting scheduled the week, I think it was the week after WannaCry hit, and I, I, mean, I was there in the room when uh, uh, Grant was able to, to look at everybody and say, hey guys, this is bad, it's a scary thing, we're working on it, but it's a good news story right now because there are no indications that any of the federal departments and agencies were impacted by this. And, and I think that that speaks to the work that's happened over the last two years. And Grant asked, he said, look, if we're missing anything, please let us know. I think there were the, definitely some folks from DHS in the room who, who talked a little bit more about it, but it, it was absolutely an easy touch point for uh, DHS and Grant Schneider to brief the CISOs directly on the incident and then to get their feedback quickly. At the same time, it gave the CISOs the ability to talk to each other and say, hey, I'm seeing this, or hey, did you got, has anyone else seen this type of event or this type of issue? Or, hey, can anyone help me with this? I, mean, I imagine that conversation may not happen across the entire council you know, during a meeting, but it can happen you know, privately or you know, in small groups. Yes. And I think that's the key here, right? I mean, it's the communication, the collaboration that maybe had been missing previously. Absolutely. I think that people, people were collaborating and they were finding ways to do it. 
but what it did was it took the conversations that were happening on the perimeter of larger gatherings, whether it's CXO gatherings or, or other cross-agency collaboration efforts, and brought it into a forum that was meant for that and gave it more time and, and gave it a lot of more space. And people are starting to, to recognize the value that that brings. All right, Ross, I'm going to throw you just a little bit of a curveball, so you know, you'll, you'll put up with me on this one. Uh, federal CISO, is it necessary? Is it needed? Do, will there be one? What, is there value in having that position, do you think? Look, I, I think that there is value to continuing to highlight the need for security professionals at the highest level and to, to keep bringing that conversation to the masses. I think that the acting federal CISO right now is doing a phenomenal job of, of raising that and really bridging a gap between what's happening in the national security space and what's happening at departments and agencies who are, who are defending. So I, I think that what's real important is that nexus between national security and defense at federal civilian agencies. And I think that if a federal CISO can help, great. Uh, let's move over to the, this administration. One of the key pieces here is the cybersecurity executive order. There's a memo from, uh, I guess, the May timeframe that talks about the implementation of that executive order. And a key piece of that was around risk management. That's one of the areas that the last administration also focused on. Talk a little bit about that memo and, and what you guys, the work you guys have been doing around risk management within the federal government. And then we can talk more broadly. Most of your listeners already know that there were two ma uh, major reports out of the cybersecurity executive order that OMB uh, leaned in on, one with a lot of agencies and one just with DHS. So the risk management report was something that we were able to submit by the deadline uh, stated in the executive order. And the data that underpinned that report came from agency submissions that were the guidance from which was was an M1725. So what it, this was a big step forward. And, and the risk management posturing that agencies had, had done before had been kind of all over the map. This created a very concise way of mapping threat to a capability to investment. And it allowed agencies who have been using FISMA metrics to kind of track and assess their own risk to then map that to the current threat environment that we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. Because we have some of the information that we do from the national security space, we are able to take some of those threats and put them right on top of the specific capabilities that CIOs and CISOs need to or should be investing in to lower their risk score. It's a maturity model that is being standardized across federal civilian agencies, and that will allow the federal government really to start comparing apples to apples across federal agencies for the first time. And, and I did a recent interview with the IG Council for IT, and she talked about um, the maturity framework and FISMA. Is this related to that, or are you talking about even something separate? No, no, no. It's absolutely related to it. I, I think that the risk, the, the risk management report incorporates those IG metrics. We at OMB the team is working hand in glove with the IG. There is no daylight between the work that they're doing. And a lot of that has to do with the relationships that have been built up by the, the current team that's there and uh, some of the, the former DDMs. I mean, they measuring two things. One, we don't want CIOs and CISOs to have to answer multiple questions with multiple different metrics if we don't have to. So aligning what we're doing for FISMA, what the OMB Cyber Team did for FISMA, 
with the work that the IGs are doing is, is only going to make us more successful in our in our measurement of risk across the federal government. I know you can't talk specifics about the risk management uh, reports because I know there's some of it's still classified or none of it's been released publicly. But generally, were there some trends or some things you saw that surprised you or, or that didn't surprise you across it? Are you able to give us a little bit of, of you know the 100,000 foot view at all? The sad part is none of it was surprising because we'd been looking at a lot of the FISMA metrics over the last few years, right? We've seen we've seen trends that agencies were in general improving their risk posture. I think the interesting piece was in the risk report for the first time was the mapping and overlay of, of the threat landscape, which the threats in and of themselves were not surprising, but it was nice to see the alignment between some of the investments that CIOs and CISOs had made with the specific threats. So We'd never had that whole picture before, and and being able to see them laid on top of each other made us actually feel better about our posture as a federal government than we had anticipated, frankly. We we saw that some of these investments that people have been making were in the areas that were most targeted. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of the work that we had done to really just shore up the basics, right? I mean, it's, it's cybersecurity is doing the basics well. And I, it's, I sound like uh, General Tuchel when I say that, but it's, it's doing that stuff well that protects you from 85 to 90 percent of the threats that are out there. Right. It goes back to those 20 critical controls we've talked about for years and cyber hygiene and all those other terms. It's it's really some of those basics. So, so it's good news. I appreciate the, the ability to give us a little bit more. Ross, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can uh, talk more about the, the future of the to-do list you left on your desk for uh, Josh Moses and others. My guest is Ross Noderf, the vice president of risk management for One World Identity and the former office of management and budget unit chief for cyber and the national security unit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. This is a special edition of Ask the CIO. It's one of our many exit interviews we've been doing over the last few months. Uh, This time it's with Ross Nodorft, the vice president of risk management at One World Identity and the former OMB unit chief for cybersecurity and the national security unit. Now, Ross, we were talking about a lot of your accomplishments, a lot of things you worked on, high-valued assets, risk management. What are some of those things that you didn't get enough time to work on or you wish you would maybe have spent more time working on? We talked a little bit about the the risk management framework that we're implementing. I would have loved to have continued to do another another rev of that for sure because I think that you start to get longitudinal data, and, and that to me is just it's, – it's, it tells a little bit more than just a, a snapshot. So I would have loved to see that. But – to be honest, I think the the thing that was the one piece that I really wanted to dig into uh, would have been working with the Hill more to provide kind of a, a, a quote-unquote liability protection for CIOs and CISOs so that they can continue to take the necessary steps to identify and recover from an incident. I think that there's been a tremendous change in the conversation over the last two and a half years, and it's it's we've talked about it throughout this interview, but having leadership be able to create an environment where the CIOs and the CISOs do not face the pending risk of being fired or being asked to leave for the discovery of an incident is paramount to solving cybersecurity across the federal government. There are so many rocks that continue to need to be turned over, and if a CIO or CISO is worried about having to be hauled up in front of a congressional committee to explain why an incident happened when it might not have been on their watch, 
causes people to hesitate where they should. We want our CIOs and CISOs in the federal government to feel empowered and enabled to lift up all of those stones and to do everything that they possibly can to shore up the defenses to protect our key and critical data. That played out over and again over the last few years where CIOs and CISOs have been hauled up, have been put on the spot, and many times they can only push back so much. They can say, well, I asked for money, but I didn't get it, or we didn't have the hiring authority to bring in the qualified people. And a lot of times it goes back to Congress not, if you will, doing their job. And did you get a chance to have some conversations on this issue with at least Oversight and Government Reform or Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee? Because those are the two initial ones that probably I imagine you'd want to start with. Yeah, and Ed, look, I, I mean, I worked on the Hill for years, so I still have those relationships. And, and having those conversations is, is good with the staff. I think that we're in a very unique position now where the political leadership in the Trump administration and the political leadership that are running the committees of jurisdiction are of the same party. That, had, did, did, that did not happen in the last administration. Because all of the, the parties are aligned, you can take politics and put it a little bit to the side now and really create an environment where CIOs and CISOs feel as though they're on the same page with the, the oversight committees that they're working with in order to get this job done. So I'm encouraged with the environment that we have, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what the Trump administration does to continue to drive that dialogue and that conversation that creates an environment of safety and security for the CIOs and CISOs to do their job well. At the same time, what about the President's Management Council, the Deputy Secretaries and the Secretaries? Because that's the other top cover that they need. They need someone to step in and say, hey, Mr. Congressman, or hey, Mr. Senator, or Mr. Senator, uh, I understand you're upset. I'm upset, too. But if you're going to blame someone, blame me because it's my agency. I mean, was that top cover piece starting to come out? Because I think— Oh, at, absolutely. At, Look, I think that the Cybersecurity Executive Order said it as bluntly as possible. The, the opening— Three or four lines said agency heads are responsible for the risk posture at the agencies. That is the statement of the administration, as clear as can be. I think that what I had seen before I left was a reinforcement of that statement over and over again. The, P, the, the President Management Council will continue to raise the level of discussion to a high enough point where CIOs and CISOs should be feeling that top cover all the way down. I think uh, Ms. Wykirk, if her nomination goes through, will absolutely continue to uh, bring the, hit that message home at the President's Management Council. So that's maybe one of the to-do lists that you're leaving for the person who will take over for you at OMB. My rumor, it's been that I've been told it's Josh Moses. I don't know if you can confirm that yet, but uh, it, whether it's Josh or somebody else, talk a little bit about what other things are on their to-do list. Look, I think the major to-do list is, for better or worse, laid out pretty publicly in the IT modernization report that just uh, that was made public. The major things that they're really going to lean into are updating the uh, TIC policy and the reference architecture. And there, I know they were working hand-in-hand with DHS to, to do that, as well as several pilot agencies. They have an identity policy that needs to be updated and then will be updated, I think it's 75 days from January 1st. The shared services are going to continue to be talked about over and over and over again, and there's going to be a big push on specific shared services, right? I think cloud email, uh, there will be vast movement forward to, to allow agencies to move and migrate their systems to one 
cloud email provider. And then SOC as a service, I think you've seen that over and over again. You start to hear that. I think that's something that we're seeing there's a disparity in, right? There, some agencies cannot afford to have a security operations center presence 24-7, and other agencies have multiple SOCs within their own organization. So really building a, a service that allows uh, smaller agencies or agencies that don't have that to, to, to buy that service is something where you see a focus. And then finally, uh, HVA modernization efforts and security, securing uh, and modernizing HVAs. I think those are those are the big topics that uh, are outlined in the IT Mod report, and I, frank, I think that's plenty for the OMB cyber team to work with DHS, GSA, and the agencies on over the coming months. All of those are fascinating. Let me dig deeper into the Security Operations Center as a service. Do you think that's possible based on what you've known in your experience? Will agencies want to give up, even if it's a 12-hour day instead of a 24-hour day SOC, will they really want to give up that SOC? I mean, it's like a data center, right? We've seen the challenges of, of closing down data centers because everyone wants to see their blinking lights. They want to hug them. Is it the same thing with security or is security a little different? I, I, want, I want to be clear about what I mean is SOC as a service as a shared service. So what I envision happening first is the creation of a of a shared service capability. Before there's a, a pounding on the table and saying you should close your SOC, we have to create something that is meets a standard that's acceptable across the federal government. And I think that, that we're we're not far away from that, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done before we get there. That is the first step. I think that when you talk about closing down SOCs, look, it, it's gonna have to be an agency by agency decision. And and there's going to be drivers that help drive those decisions, even if they, even if people feel like they're tough. Right now, the budgetary environment is shrinking. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. The, the the budget climate right now is austere at best. So tough decisions are going to need to be made. And if there's an option on the table for a cheaper and as secure SOC offering, I think that the leadership at an agency are, are really going to have to consider those options. A lot of people have said around cloud, it's not cheaper. You do get more capabilities or you're paying the same for more capabilities. Well, do you see SOC as a service being cheaper? I mean, is, is that a real possibility or will it just be better services or more services for the same cost? So it could be both, right? It depends on the agency that's coming in there. A lot of these agencies haven't purchased basic security services like these SOCs before. So, of course, there's going to be an increase in cost to some of these agencies to have some of those capabilities or to, to purchase some of those capabilities for the first time. But the marginal protection that comes from investing in a capability like that, vice paying out for the loss of data and having people have their identity protection services extended for however many years, the delta, the return on investment there is fairly clear and fairly substantial, frankly. You mentioned TIC, Trusted Internet Connection. That's one of the big obstacles to ensure agencies can more easily move to the cloud. But one of the other things you didn't mention was the continuous diagnostics and mitigation program. And in, in, in some ways, that is your first as a service offering for cybersecurity. Talk a little bit about CDM and what your takeaways from the efforts around CDM have been. CDM, continuous diagnostic mitigation as a program, is a series of capabilities, right? Part of the reason I didn't talk about CDM as a program is because it is a lot of capabilities. All of the phases add upon themselves. Look, I think they're making progress. Uh, they're making actually very, very good progress. I've been very lucky to have worked with Kevin Cox over in the office, program management office, as well as 
Jim Pichet over at GSA. And I, I can tell you, I have not met two professionals who are more dedicated and uh, to helping agencies really dig in and, and acquire the right tools and services uh, at the right times uh, and layer those protections. I think that we're at a critical juncture right now where agencies are starting to plug in, starting to plug into the dashboard, starting to, to really take a hard look at their assets and then overlay that with the, with the appropriate security. And I think that the CDM program has enabled that to happen for the first time. So, I, I, look, I'm, I'm very bullish on the CDM program, and I think that uh, it's going to continue to do good things and really change the game on how, uh, how secure our federal agencies are. And I would agree with you on the Kevin Cox and Jim Pichet. Both are, are super people, and both are doing a really yeoman's job of getting this program out there and doing it in a way that makes the agencies happier. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can uh, ask you the, the, my favorite exit interview question, which is uh, if you were uh, in charge for a day, what, what changes would you make? But before you answer that, we'll take a quick break. My guest is Ross Noderft, the Vice President of Risk Management at One World Identity and the former OMB Unit Chief for Cyber and National Security Unit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Ross Noderft, the Vice President of Risk Management at One World Identity and the former Office of Management and Budget Unit Chief for Cyber and the National Security Unit. Ross, we've been talking a lot about your accomplishments, some of the things you wish you had more time on. We talked about the to-do list for the next cyber unit chief over at OMB. But let's talk about what areas that still need to be addressed. We know the IT modernization plan is out. We know that there's plenty to do there. But if if looking beyond that, what are some of those other areas you'd say, you know, if I was in charge for the day, here's the next set of strategies I'd look at or next things I would want to touch upon? There's three major, three major things. One uh, understanding the role identity plays in ensuring security, right? The the ICAM efforts and really digging into what identity does is is extraordinarily important. Two, I think that we continue to shift the conversation to focus on risk mitigation and strong data management practices. And we've talked about that throughout the interview, but I think that that next step in in having a good data governance policy in place is going to yield tremendous results, and it'll actually inform greatly the third thing that we need to focus on, which is the continued uh, efforts around IT modernization. The antiquated systems, we have to figure out where to spend the dollars that we have. And I think that focusing on those first two, understanding how identity really plays a role in ensuring people have access to what they need to, understanding that data governance policy for the for the entirety of the the data that's in a federal system, and then investing strategically in the I, in the modernization uh, that needs to happen across the federal government in order to be successful. I want to go back to the identity piece. Obviously, that's going to be close to home working at a company called One World Identity. But talk a little bit about that identity. I know there's a policy that's coming out. I, I, I talked to uh, Paul Grassi at NIST recently about that as well. But from your perspective, what's that ICAM piece? What's that identity piece really need to address going forward? Is it the end of the PIV slash CAC or what? It's really taking a hard look at how you level the protections, right? Now, the CAC card is an important piece because it allows you to really create a barrier of entry for getting on a network. I think that we have to take it another step. I think we have to get into how identity impacts what you can see, do, and touch once you're inside the network, right? So 
focusing less on boundary, more on internal. And it, it, again, it plays right into the idea of data governance. I mean, you look at Google. They've moved to a zero-trust network. We, as a federal government, aren't quite there yet, but we need to modernize uh, the way that we are currently uh, networked and structured. And I think that in order to successfully do that, we have to update our identity policy to reflect ways that certain people can access certain data using different tools and technologies. So that policy, when it comes out, will, will absolutely be fundamental in updating some of some of the other data management and data governance uh, policies that need to follow on. And I know one of the biggest changes is the end of M0404, the e-authentication <laughs> guidance. Imagine there'll be some others as well. So uh, something to look forward to, as you said, about 75 days uh, into the new year. Though, so we'll start yep. looking for that. I know they're working hard on it right now. Ross, we're almost out of time. Before I let you go, uh, and this has been a fascinating conversation, uh, I always like to ask those people who have left government or are leaving government, if you could change one or two things about government, in your case, cybersecurity, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you change? What, what are the big, hairy things that, wow, I wish we could just get rid of that or change that or fix that? I would love to have a NTOC-like capability for the federal civilian government. That would require a lot of legislative change. It would require a lot of work with agencies who have very sensitive data, like statistical agencies. But to, to be able to have an organization that is able to go in and turn on and off in response to an immediate threat or an immediate breach and really, really just take care of the federal government as a whole would be my ideal. Additionally, it would be having a world in which, again, CIOs and CISOs can operate without fear of reprisal and really invest where they need to and have full and complete control over their budgets. I mean, right now we have Fatara, so legally they can, the authorities exist. But as you know, Jason, you've been covering this for years, the culture within the federal government is a hard thing to change. And I, I think that as CIOs and as CISOs really build relationships with the CFOs and, and this issue is addressed at a higher level, I think that we will we will see more dramatic change. And you mentioned the term was it an NSOC or so Network and Security Operations Center? No, no, uh, NTOC. So it's it's a it's a capability that DoD and DISA have. So it's a it's a threat operations center. So it's it's similar to a security operations center, but it's it's a broader threat operations center that the DoD has and that they can they can use and go across the different departments and agencies at DOD. I'd love to see that replicated on, on the federal civilian side and have a, a capability that, whether it's DHS or, or, or even somebody else, uh, can go in and just hit an off button until we figure out what's going on. I think that would be that would be a huge uh, step forward. Uh, even if it's rarely used, I think it would be a good capability to have on hand. Very nice. From uh, your mouth to the ears of uh, those people who are making the decisions now, that you no longer uh, have to worry about those types of things. I'd like to thank my guest, Ross Noderft, the Vice President of Risk Management at One World Identity and the former Office of Management and Budget Unit Chief for the Cyber and National Security Unit. Ross, thank you so much for your time today. And of course, thank you for your service to the country. No, thank you, Jason. This was, this was great. You've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes.